do sit and let's pray as we come to God's word. Father, we thank you that your word is living and active. We thank you, Father, that uh, you have promised that your word does not return to you without accomplishing the purposes you sent it forth for. Father, we thank you that your Holy Spirit has promised to take your word and apply it to our hearts. Father, I don't know uh, most people here, but you know the hearts of everyone. And so, Father, we pray that by your Spirit's power, you would lift our eyes, open our hearts, and fix our souls on Jesus. We might see him, the one who is the author and the perfecter of our faith. Now, Father, we might grow to love and serve him more. So change our hearts, and uh, through our hearts, change us, that we might bring glory to your name Individually, our Father, this church might be that um, picture together of the love of Jesus. That your name might be glorified, your kingdom might be extended in this town, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. One of the worst uh, sounds you can hear is, maybe it's like on that little video, maybe it's the alarm clock at whatever unearthly hour uh, on a morning. Uh, I once made the mistake of uh, having uh, one of my favourite songs as my alarm on my phone. It wasn't my favourite song for right long. Uh, My worst song at the minute, uh, sorry, my worst sound at the minute uh, also comes out of my phone. I've got a little app on my phone and uh, the worst sound in the world says this. Ping, start to the exercise. 40 cross-arm crunches. And the pain it anticipated in that is not right impressive. But whatever it is, what's the worst thing? What's the worst, perhaps even news you could hear? Well, here we've got Jonah. And he gets the worst news you could ever hear. Because uh, as we saw, uh, as we heard it read in chapter 1, Jonah doesn't like what God tells him. And he'd rather have a different job. He'd rather have a a different message. But what he gets is a revelation of God's heart for God's world. And he gets uh, through that a revelation of who God is. And as he uh, interacts with that truth of who God is... And as God uses that truth to change him and shape him, Jonah changes. Not perfectly. He's still a loser. We'll get to chapter 4 tomorrow afternoon. But God uses him to bring about his purposes in his life and in the lives of people who Jonah never would have imagined interacting with. And so, uh, we're going to look through this book of Jonah. And like I said before, it's not going to be a book where we just trot through the kind of things we know about Jonah. You know, there was a whale and there was Ninevites and, you know, Jonah chucked over the side in a storm and all that sort of business. Because when we really dig down into this, it cuts us to our hearts. And so, as we 
focusing on chapter 1 now, we're going to think of two questions this morning. The first one, we're going to think, uh, do you know best, or do you really know best? And then the second one, where is the love? So firstly, let's ask that question, do you really know best? I was watching a documentary last night about the band Oasis, and it got me uh, thinking again about uh, riders that bands put in. You know, bands, they go out and they, they're doing a world tour or a, a, a tour of the UK or whatever, and they've got the rider, haven't they? It says all these things must be available, you know, like the sound system and the, the lights and all that, so we can just pull up and, and get sorted. Here's uh, a couple of people's riders, famous people. So Slash, the guitarist out of Guns N' Roses. On his last tour, this was what must be in his dressing room, else he won't come in. A square melon, seven types of cheese, and two bear-shaped pots of honey. Jennifer Lopez, an all-white dressing room that included candles, sofas, and flowers. And she would like, please, her coffee stirred anti-clockwise. I think I've said, sorry love, your music's rubbish anyway, don't bother coming. <laughs> it's not worth it. What a bunch of divas. And we look at these people, don't we, and we say, eh, what a bunch of divas. They're just so full of themselves. Do you know what? As we come to Jonah this morning, that was perhaps Jonah. Because eh, look at verse 1. It says, now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, uh, saying, uh, and then we get a message from God. Now, eh, Jonah, the son of Amittai, is in the Bible already. If you've been, re- if you read through your Bible, you've met Jonah before in 2 Kings 14. He was a famous guy. He was God's servant. He'd come to the nation and he'd prophesied the word of the Lord to them that, that blessing and power and prosperity was going to come on the nation. He was probably around in in the first half of the 8th century BC and the king then was a dude called uh, Jeroboam II. Now, I don't know what you think of our politicians at the minute, but they weren't as bad as Jeroboam II. He he was a bad uh, king who'd mixed the worship of God with uh, the worship of all kinds of other uh, hideous idols. And uh, he'd... Brought the nation to a point where you had those really uh, rich people at the top. And then everybody else was just in absolute poverty. And both Hosea and Amos had come and prophesied uh, against this guy and said, God's going to smash you eventually because uh, your leadership is an absolute joke. You're taking the people away from God. Now, they, Hosea and Amos, had both spoken out against the way the prosperity and growth of the rich at the expense of the poor was going on. And yet this guy that we've got here, Jonah, in 2 Kings 14, had prophesied exactly that prosperity and growth. Now... When you take all that together, that that Jonah was the guy who who said Jeroboam was so great, that Jonah prophesied growth and prosperity for the nation of Israel, then when you take it with his character in this book, it's not hard, is it, to see Jonah as this die-hard nationalist who's loyal to Jeroboam. 
He doesn't like foreigners. He's uh, probably really enjoyed going around telling everybody how great uh, Israel is and how God is going to bless them. And so as this word of the Lord comes to him, verse 2, we probably think he's going to like the command, doesn't it? Look at verse 2 there. Rise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before it. Jonah's going to love that, isn't he? You don't like those uh, foreigners. Israel's going to be great. He's, God's going to smash Nineveh. And just to say that, when uh, God talks about Nineveh here, that's doing duty uh, for, for the big Assyrian Empire, really the big, hard uh, empire of the world at that time, it's like talking about London. You know, Americans might talk about, we, we're, we're going to London. That's rubbish. I won't do that again. <laughs> We're going to, you know, London says this, or Washington says this. It's Britain and America, isn't it? That's what uh, God's using that for here. This empire was Gentile, it was pagan, it was immoral, it was powerful, it was threatening. And you'd think Jonah said, well, I've got a message to call out against it. Because if it's evil, God's going to absolutely smash this nation. And yet, Jonah doesn't like it. Verse 3, 1 not because he's scared necessarily about going to Nineveh but perhaps because he is a bit of a diva because if you just uh, look over to chapter 4 and verse 2 Jonah knows what this word means verse four, uh, chapter 4 verse 2 Jonah prayed to the Lord and said oh Lord is this is this Is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. You see, Jonah knows what it really means to go and call out against Nineveh. That's why he's reluctant. There's no chance he's going to give this bunch of dirty pagans an opportunity to repent. And come to know the God of Israel. (laughs) To be forgiven. To escape judgment. To know the blessing of his God. His nation's God. Now now God. You're pretty cool. You've given us lots of stuff. But you've got this one wrong haven't you? And so verse 3. Jonah is off. He's over the sea to. Well anywhere really. Look at where he's going. Uh, Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. Now you remember your children's Bible, don't you? Tarshish is in Spain. It's a long way away. Apart from Tarshish is in Turkey and uh, Spain and Crete and just about everywhere in the Mediterranean. It was often used as a word just to mean the sea. You see, Anna is telling us Not that Jonah's going to a specific place. It's just that Jonah is running as fast as he possibly can anywhere which is in the general direction of away from where God wants him to be. Because perhaps he thought if he ran away, then he could escape from God. But that's unlikely. As we're going to see this afternoon, Jonah knew uh, his Psalter, the book of Psalms, really well. Psalm 139. Says, where can I go to escape from your presence, God? 
Perhaps Jonah's thinking instead, if he got away from Israel, then he'd be out of God's immediate presence. He'd be out of hearing his word, and he could forget about it. Perhaps he's hoping that God would just get fed up with him, leave him alone, and find somebody else to do this job. You know, a bit like where we've had politicians resigning this week, haven't we? No comment whatsoever. Uh, But, you know, when that politician or that army general or whatever, they get a a, a command or an order or something to, to put into place, and they just can't do it because of their conscience or because it affects their career or whatever... And they resign, knowing full well that all along, somebody else will come in and carry out the thing they resigned over. That's perhaps Jonah here, but behind it all is Jonah's heart here, I think. He says, I'm right. God, you've got it wrong. He was happy enough to follow God's word uh, when he liked it in two kings, but not when it clashes with his own well, what he sees as his biblical worldview, but couldn't be farther from the heart of God at all. He's happy to preach the good stuff about Israel. He's happy to to declare blessing on Israel, even when that growth uh, wasn't good for them. But he's unwilling here, verses 1 to 3, to preach impending doom, which might do good to the enemies of Israel. In fact, he'd do anything to avoid it. And it's easy for us, isn't it, to see uh, this heart in the world around us. You know, this, this world that likes Christians, when we talk about peace and perhaps even social justice and love and stuff, when we talk about sin and forgiveness, not so much. But I wonder, this morning, whether we see ourselves in Jonah. Do we see our heart in Jonah? You know, in that situation where you know really quite well that this isn't how life ought to be. This isn't what I had planned out. This isn't how my life should be going. When uh, we refuse to accept that this situation, this life really is the Lord's calling on our life. Perhaps we see our heart uh, like Jonah's when we're uh, only willing to invest time and energy and sacrifice in people who are like us or in people we like. Perhaps uh, we see our heart in Jonah's when we fall into the trap of uh, knowing the kind of people who would be really good if they came to our church. People who are sorted and don't cause too many problems. People who could put their hand in the pocket. People who are going to get on with us. When we fall into the trap of holding grudges, like Jonah here, we know God should punish. They sinned against me. They don't deserve grace. Have you ever found yourself saying that? That's the point of grace. Because just like Jonah, perhaps we too often fall into the trap of thinking a little too much of ourselves. Of our wants, our desires, our opinions. We've forgotten that all we have and all we are, if we're in Christ, is a gift 
of God's grace. We've forgotten that we need grace as much as the next person. Get this into uh, your head. You are the worst sinner you know. Because you know what goes on in your head. You know what goes on in your heart. And therefore, unlike Jonah, we need to grasp that grace, by the very nature of what it is, is God's undeserved uh, kindness on rebellious sinners. And so Jonah reminds us that we need to be constantly seeking grace, constantly reviewing our hearts and our lives. Seeking out that area, or those areas where we think we know better than God. Jonah reminds us ultimately, throughout this book, that we need one who is better than Jonah. One who willingly took on the mission his father gave him. He didn't run in the, same, in the opposite direction, but went to the cross to go to the undeserving and the evil and to show them the grace of God. To come, Jesus came to warn his enemies of impending doom with compassion and clarity. The one who refused to run away, even when he had the chance, but instead lay on his face and said, not my will done, be done but yours. Even though the thought of it nearly killed him. And to do something more, to take that doom upon himself, that we might know freedom from it. So the first thing we've got to grasp this morning is, especially in this first chapter, Jonah is not an example we need to follow. Don't be a diva. Perhaps your mum told you that when you were a kid. My wife tells me that quite a lot. (laughs) But come to Jesus. Bring in nothing but your sin and know his forgiveness. Grace for know-it-alls. Humility for divas. Come and follow Jesus, even when it's difficult, and ask, secondly, where is the love? Love's a difficult concept, isn't it? A tricky concept. Very uh, many people in our culture would not think that um, the message Jonah's got to bring is very loving. But it's only not loving if telling somebody is about to step out in front of a train that they shouldn't do it isn't loving. That train's going to run you over. Because here's the outstanding, outrageous thing about this passage. The very grace and love for losers that Jonah rejects. That grace for these horrible people over there in Nineveh. Is exactly the same love and grace that won't let him go. As Jonah here proves himself just to be as much of a loser as the Ninevites... God shows him and us his outrageous grace. He says, I only want losers. And I'll use them to bring about my purposes. Because God here, uh, not so gently as it turns out, uh, reminds Jonah who knows best. He reminds him uh, that the Lord is God, not Jonah. The Lord is God, not you and me. 
He reminds him that the love and grace of God, Jonah doesn't want lavished on the Ninevites, is exactly the same love and grace he so desperately needs. You see, Jonah, uh, there we are, look, verse 3, uh, runs off to the sea. He was the first one to run away to sea. Uh, it made about as much mess of it as everybody else in those stories. But he runs off to sea thinking he can escape his responsibilities as God's servant. Thinking he can get out of doing the hard yards of loving those who hate him. Of loving like God does. And so God says, no way, lad. He turns his world upside down. Literally. Because just uh, cast your eyes, remember the story of Jonah. Uh, He goes off there, uh, gets on his ship, goes uh, out to see the storm. Is bad, so bad that hardened sailors are terrified for their lives and will even contemplate killing somebody to survive. Think about Jonah there. Where he thought safety was, he thought safety was running away from God, actually turns out to be where the danger is. Where he thought he'd be escaping, or sorry, what he thought he'd be escaping, you know, going and telling pagans and seeing God shower his grace upon them, is exactly what ends up happening on that ship, isn't it? He thought he'd uh, escape going to Nineveh and telling uh, Gentiles that God had mercy and grace. He ends up on a ship doing what? Telling Gentiles that God has mercy and grace and seeing God save them. What he wished on the Assyrians, that death and judgment of God, is exactly what he ends up realising he deserves. There, look, in uh, verse 11, uh, 12, sorry. Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, know, uh, for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon me. What Jonah thought he was, just look there at verse 9. He said, I am a Hebrew and I fear the Lord God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. What Jonah thought he was, a servant, a worshipper of the Lord, entirely dependent on the creator of all reality, is, verse 17, exactly what he ends up being. Not because he's great, but because of God's grace. Look at him, he's chucked into the sea, he's helpless, sinking down, and the Lord, the creator of heaven and earth, a point at a great fish to swallow up Jonah. Just imagine uh, what it would have been like to be in that storm. Storms are annoying, aren't they? I was going to say storm. Uh, well, I was going to say Chris is annoying, but uh, think about that. Um, but there's a storm earlier in the year, and you know. When it's really windy and you realise you haven't locked the gate properly. And the question is, right, is it better to let it bang all night or get cold and out of bed? And I sat for an hour. Don't want to get out. This was like in January or something. I don't want to get out of bed because it's cold, it's wet, it's windy. I'll never get back to sleep if I get back up. But in the end, I went out 
and bins were all over the place, the gate was banging away, the trampoline was nearly going. It was awful. And you just realise in those circumstances that you've got no chance. If you've ever tried to put up a tent in anything like a breeze, you know a storm is horrible. And then when you're on the sea as well, But this one's so bad, look, verse 5, that these sailors who spent their life on it are absolutely terrified. You know, this is not on the the cross-channel ferry when it gets a bit bumpy and everybody's losing their dinner and the staff just walk around like nothing's happened and realise they've actually got more food to eat because nobody else wants any. These are other professionals who are absolutely losing it. And Jonah rightly sees, look, verse 12... Uh, that we read a minute ago, that his rebellion against God deserved only one fate, death. Let's make no bones about it. Jonah's not uh, expecting a fish. Jonah's not expecting a life raft. Jonah's not expecting Jules Verne to come and save him. Or Captain Nemo or whatever it is. He knows he's going over and he's going down. He probably thought that God had had enough of him. He saw here... That not only were the Assyrians evil, uh, God-hating losers, he was, in fact, himself one. He saw that the game was up, this was it. And yet, let's really grasp the extent of it. Let's grasp the outrageousness that verse 17, God still says, Jonah, I'm going to rescue you, I'm going to save you. You see, he learns what we're going to see this afternoon. That God uses losers. That even Jonah's rejection of God's command wasn't enough to trump God's grace. That Jonah's weakness and foolishness didn't disqualify him from walking with God. His sin... Because of the outrageous nature of God's grace wasn't enough to separate him from the one who was going to bring him back. He got here that uh, the love and grace of God really is far broader, far more outrageous than he previously understood. You see, perhaps Jonah got here, as we're going to see uh, today and tomorrow, that if God could love actively disobedient hating Jonah surely he could love sinful immoral Nineveh you see that was the lesson that uh, the apostle Paul tells us was behind his conversion wasn't it do you remember 1 Timothy 1 verse 15 this is a trustworthy saying and worthy of all acceptance Christ Jesus came into the world uh, to save sinners of whom I'm the worst why For this reason, God showed his patience with me. Basically, what does Paul go on to say? If he can save me, the rest of you, it's easy. Jonah sees here that in order for Jonah to declare them, to them their sin, he needed to see his first, up close and personal. Uh, Perhaps in order to be ready uh, to go and proclaim God's grace to Nineveh, he needed to experience it afresh himself. 
Perhaps the same is true uh, for us. If we're going to encourage one another, preach the gospel to one another, point one another to Jesus, and say there is grace in Christ, we need to have experienced it ourselves. I will say this about a billion times this weekend. So, Well, I was going to apologise, but I don't apologise. You cannot give away what you don't have. We need to experience the reality of God's uh, grace ourselves so that we can give it to others. If you're uh, to go out into the town and tell people the good news of Jesus, you need to be thrilled by it yourself. I'll see that tomorrow uh, especially. You see, we're going to see ourselves in Jonah throughout this book, but first and foremost, this is not primarily a book about Jonah or about us. It's a book, in essence, like the whole Bible itself. A book about God. A book about his outrageous love and grace. It's not, first and foremost, a call for us to be better people. Or at least less worse people. It's a call to see afresh. To experience for ourselves afresh. To rejoice in and then to share with those around us this outrageous, overflowing, gracious love of God. To see afresh as we look at ourselves today, maybe, the reality of the depth of our sin. That sin, not something that's not worth bothering about, but hideous to a holy, loving God that it took the death of his only begotten son to pay the price for all our sins. To see for ourselves how much we need the outrageous love of God as we turn away from him again and again and again. To see for ourselves the length and breadth and height and depth, the extent of this love which always unflows, uh, overflows sorry, to the unworthy, the broken, the undeserving. To praise God together this weekend. That he has chosen to bestow it on us and on those around us. And out of that awestruck wonder, like Jonah is going to do in chapters 2 to 4, to go and share it with others. So this morning, here's some questions for us. You're making notes, you might want to jot some of these down. What, where are you like Jonah? Where am I like Jonah? Where do you need to see afresh just how outrageous God's grace and love for you in Jesus really is? Where have you come to just assume the gospel? For it to be too familiar. Where do you functionally at least think you're good enough that you match up? That God owes you one. He's he's got a good one on his side here. Where are you happy to accept, like Jonah, the blessings that God bestows upon you without taking the accompanying call to repentance and cross-carrying seriously? If any of that's you this morning, and and if, if it's not you in some way or other, then the Bible's wrong. Come to the cross again this morning. If you need to see afresh the depth 
of sin, what it really does. If you need to see afresh just how evil your sin outside of Christ is, look and see Jesus at the cross. Naked, broken, abandoned, bleeding out his life and soul for you. We each need to come and repent like Jonah is going to do in chapter 2 of our self-confidence. To recognise our dependence on him and rest only in him. And where like Jonah perhaps, do you need to see afresh God's outrageous love for the people of the world? Where do you need to see this heart of God for those perhaps that you look down on? Perhaps we could use the word despise. Where do you need, like Jonah, to repent of your inaction and your selfishness in keeping this saviour to yourself? Again, we need to come to the cross. To see Jesus hanging there, as 1 John 2, 2 tells us, as a turning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. A dying lamb that sinners might live. Not just for the ones you and I like, or the ones who are like us, but for the ones on whom Jesus has set his love. I think about that much more throughout the afternoon. So as we dig into Jonah, we want to pray that God by his spirit would perhaps even do the same to us as he did to Jonah here. I mean, I don't fancy swimming. I mean, it's a warm day. And I don't fancy the whale and I don't fancy any of that. But that same heart work needs to go on in our lives. We need to see afresh the reality of a holy, sovereign loving, gracious God. We need to see the reality of who we are. And what God has made us to be in Jesus. And we need to ask that he would change our hearts to be in awe of that love and grace that we might share it with others. You see, ultimately, in the rest of this book, Jonah is going to show us a God who's big enough and gracious enough and loving enough to challenge our very hearts, desires and dreams and assumptions that we and others might know him better. It's going to challenge us. It's going to encourage us, but it's going to challenge us right down to the levels of our desires and dreams and loves. Trap yourselves in. If we have not changed by the end of this book, we've not understood it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your awesome grace to us in Jesus. We thank you, Father, that you love us enough not just to leave us where we are, selfish and self-absorbed. But Father, you love us enough to show us at your heart that you took us when we were dead in our trespasses and sins and you have made us alive in Jesus.
Father, we thank you for that grace and we pray that you would fill our hearts with awe and wonder and love and praise. That your overflowing love might fill us, that we might overflow to others. That they might too see this awesome, loving God and their desperate need of him. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.